Well, good morning. My name is Jimmy Funches. I'm one of the pastors here. And as they get this microphone situation figured out in EQ, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. And before we get there, I've got a couple things I want to say. First of all, I am ex- very excited about the Roots Initiative. Uh, these videos always bring a tear to my eye because they put in that B-roll footage where it shows like where we've been. And if you haven't been with us for all seven or so years of this, then you missed out because there's like some really fun, awkward, interesting times that we've had. I remember when it was just me, Abby, and Terry Lee as the band. And so we would play, Terry Lee would play drums, I'd play guitar, Abby would sing. And then Terry Lee would get up to preach. And there, and I mean, we, we started so small and, you know, look at us, we're here. And it's uh, amazing to see. Um, it's amazing to see so many people who have been with us since the very beginning. Uh, people who have gone away and were with us at the beginning, like my friend Aaron Hickson, who's here today just visiting us. And um, you just see so many instances of God's faithfulness. And that's, that's the story of the Oaks. The story of the Oaks is not how great we are. I think me and Terry Lee, we'd be, we would be the first to say it is not how great we are. Uh, we are not the protagonists of this story. The story of the Oaks is that God brings restoration to our city through this message, through the gospel. And that changes everything. And when you make that the main thing, it changes everything. And it makes it so that we can be in a room like this and Lord willing that one day we'll be in our new building as well. So we're excited for that as we think about the Roots Initiative, our big ask from each and every one of you is what does it look like for you to take the next step in your discipleship? Uh, Of course, we're gonna be raising money for the building, but that's not our goal. Our goal is not just money. That's not what we're all about. Uh, We are all about discipleship. And uh, of course, we believe that giving is a part of discipleship. It's a part of growing in the Lord. But we want each and every one of you to ask yourself, what is the Lord calling me to? What's the Lord calling me to when it comes to financial faithfulness? Certainly. But what is the Lord calling me to in terms of the next step of my discipleship? This is, I love that this is coming at the end of a year because we're about to be upon a new year in in no time. And that's a perfect time to sort of think about these questions. What, What is the next step for me? Perhaps it's sharing the gospel with that person that I've had on my mind and heart for so long. Perhaps it's something... Uh, related to just Bible reading. I'm, I'm going to read the Bible in a year for the very first time ever. What does that look like? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the Roots Initiative. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to take the next step in our discipleship together. Because at the end of the day, that is what the church is all about. We are discipling one another, growing with one another, growing in Christ as we await his return. And so that is very exciting for us. And we'll have some more on that at the end of the service that Terry Lee will talk about. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention uh, is I'm just going to take a minute to pray in a moment, but I feel it necessary to talk about what's happening in Israel overseas. I'm sure that you've seen the news, and um, I just want to encourage each and every one of us to be praying. There's not a whole lot that we can do actively. You know, I often think about how many of us spend 80% of time thinking and wondering and sort of wrestling in our hearts with stuff that we have absolutely no control over, no no hand in at all. And if we would just focus on the things that we actually have a hand on in our own lives, we'd all be better off. But this is one of those things that while we may not be able to go over there, be active, do anything to really change things in a, a, a very, very proactive way, I think that we forget sometimes that we can be praying and that prayer matters. Prayer absolutely matters, and it certainly matters in this case because there's uh, horrific atrocities going on over there, and this is not something that we should turn a blind eye toward, Uh, and it's not something that's political. It's something that is spiritual. It's something that matters. We see horrific things happening, and I I would just encourage you to do two things. Number one, don't put your head in the sand to what's happening. We should not just sort of turn a blind eye to what happens in our world. Look at the pictures, look at what's happening, and have your heart broken for the evil that exists in this world. We have to be aware of the evil that exists in our world. So force yourself to understand what's going on. But then at the same time, let our recognition of that evil 
lead to a spirit-led and God-honoring prayer to save people, to save people physically so that people would not be murdered, so that women and children would not be killed, so that people would not be used as human shields by a terrorist organization. We need to pray for that to end. But at the same time, we pray as those who have hope, that even in the worst conditions, even in the most horrific atrocities, and and don't forget, Israel has been through quite a bit of atrocities in their history, that even in the midst of all of that, God is there, and God is faithful, and we serve a Lord who is mighty to save. We serve a Lord who is just, but he's merciful, and he's kind, but perhaps most importantly, he listens to our prayers. So may we be a church that is praying for what's going on over there, praying for this terrorist organization, Hamas, to be brought to justice, and pray for the salvation, both physically and spiritually, of thousands and thousands and millions of people in that region. So I want to pray to that end, and I want to encourage you to pray personally, knowing that the Lord hears our prayers. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, both for this time that we have in the sermon, but also for the nation of Israel. Lord, we are coming before you this morning, and we are grateful. Lord, we're so grateful. We think about the wonderful things going on in our own church. We think about the prospect of buying a building. We think about the, the, the growth that's happening here about how people are growing in their faith and seeing you more clearly and obeying you more faithfully and looking to you more hopefully. And Lord, we just pray and ask that you would do that in other places. Lord, that you would bring spiritual restoration all over the world. Lord, we are mindful of what's happening in Israel, and we pray that you would bring about a swift end to the violence And Lord, that you would work out your will in that region. Lord, we do know that you love your people. So God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to see salvation in our time. Help us to see your people who once rejected you come to know you. But Lord, also we just pray that you would bring a swift end to the injustice and the violence that's happening overseas. And Lord, we do pray for our time together. Lord, we are mindful of how every time we open your word, you are speaking. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to have an open heart to hear what you would have for us to hear this morning. Lord, I pray that we would hear your voice. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've opened up to Romans chapter 14. We've been working our way through the book of Romans for a while now. If you've noticed, we've sort of gone back and forth. We've been doing Romans in the fall, and then we did Mark in the spring. We finished with Mark, and now we're going to be finishing Romans this semester, and we're excited for that. Uh, But we're also sort of just looking back. There's so much that's said in Romans. This is one of the most often read and often quoted books of the Bible, and there's so much theological depth. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that, man, I want to study the book of Romans. There's so much that we learn there. A lot of people sort of become Christian and they're like, I'm going to read the book of Romans because that's where I sort of understand theology, this study of God, who God is, who I am, who I am in Christ, all of these things. There's so many wonderful themes. If you look at the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are just absolutely packed with theological truth. It teaches all sorts of things. It talks about the depravity of man and how we're all sinful, about how none of us has an excuse for our sin before God. But it also teaches us that God is rich in mercy. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that even though the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life through him, our Lord. And we learn then that we should not sin any longer. We shouldn't sin so that grace may abound. We we learn that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We learn that all things work together for good, for those of you who love Christ Jesus. 
We learn about how God chose for himself a people to save and to rescue and to redeem. There's, there's all of these themes in the first 11 chapters of Romans, and you sort of just sit there and you're just blown away. I mean, there's a reason why it's taken us well over a year to even get to chapter 14, where we are in the book of Romans. It's because it's just deep. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to unpack. That's what we've been doing the last couple falls. And as we come to Romans 14, I want you to note that we are not in the first 11 chapters. So we're not in the, let's go deep in the theology section. Now there's still theology here, but what we're more so in now is the practical section. Okay? So you got Romans chapters 1 through 11, sort of showing us who God is, showing us what God has done to save us. And then you've got chapters 12 through 16 over here. Chapters 12 through 16 basically talk about, well, what are we supposed to do now with all of this? You've taught me all, all these wonderful theological things, Apostle Paul, but what am I supposed to do with this? And that's where we get into the practical outworking of theology. How does theology benefit us? And that's answered in Romans chapter, chapters 12 through 16. We learn a variety of things. In Romans chapter 12, we talked about how we should not be conforming to the world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We learn about how we should put off unrighteousness and how we should grow in the way that we obey the Lord. That we should put off our old life and all of the sin and the pleasures that we had back then, and we should put on Christ. We learn in chapter 13, right? to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to render unto the Lord the things that are the Lord's. We learn that the law of Christ is a law of love and that we should live out that law of love in the church, in our lives. So those are practical ways that the gospel, that this theology, that this message changes the way that we live every day. And that's what these chapters are all about. How does this change the way that we live on a daily basis? So we come to Romans 14, and as we come to Romans 14, we're going to take up another issue. We're going to take up the issue of how do we actually live together? What do we do whenever there are disagreements? What do I do whenever someone in my church disagrees with me over something that's not like an essential issue, but it's still pretty important to me? How do I act toward that person? How do I understand how to walk with people with whom I disagree. That's what we come to in Romans chapter 14. Let me just say this. When we talk about these sort of last five chapters, these last five chapters, if you wanted to just sort of summarize them, it's how to live in a loving way with other people. How to live in a loving way with other people. Now, I just want to be the first to say, that sounds really nice, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound nice? Let's live in a loving way with people. You know, it sounds like something that you might find on a coffee mug that you buy at Target or a piece of wall decor that you get from the Hobby Lobby, right? Live in love with each other. It's flowery, it's nice, seems great. But let me be the first to say that living in a loving way with other people, i.e. other sinners, is not so easy. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's incredibly difficult to live in a loving way with people, especially when those people are people that you disagree with. And that's the reality of our text today. Living with love towards others is difficult. And what we need to realize is that living in a loving way toward others is predicated on putting the needs and desires of other people before you. And I just want to confess right here at the beginning, I am pretty certain that I am number one in this room at something. Now, before you say, no, hey, guy, I'm number one, let me say what I'm number one in. I am number one in being the most selfish person in this room. I have been selfish since I was a kid. I can remember being a very small kid and being wildly selfish about things. And I can think to very recent memory of being very selfish about things. I'm incredibly selfish. And so for me, it's very difficult to put the needs or the desires of someone else before me. Because at the end of the day, like, it's my world and y'all are all just living in my world. That's kind of like how we all think, don't we? It's my world, you're just living in it, okay? So my needs come first, my desires come first. 
But what we're going to learn in Romans 14 today is that that's just not a biblical way to think. It's not a Christian way to think. It's not a righteous way to think. No, when we look at Jesus, we see how we ought to think and how we ought to act. And when we look at Jesus, we see someone who put the needs and the desires of an entire people before his own. So as someone who struggles with all of this, let me just say, what we're going to be talking about is difficult. It's difficult to talk about putting the needs of someone else before you. But let me also say, life is really easy when you agree with everyone around you. And if you're here and you surround yourself with a bunch of people who are just like you, then life probably is pretty easy. But true love is not seen in a bunch of people who are homogenous hanging out together. True love is seen in the way that love overcomes the most divisive issues that exist in this world. And that's what we're talking about in Romans 14. When we have disagreements, how should we act toward one another? When we encounter someone in our own church who thinks just absolute opposite to us, contrary to how we think, what should we do? And so the main message that we're going to see in Romans chapter 14 is this. Regardless of our personal views on non-essential issues, we must work to welcome those with whom we disagree and to pursue the kingdom by pursuing peace with one another. Regardless of our personal views on non-essential issues, we must work together. We must work to welcome those with whom we disagree and pursue the kingdom by pursuing peace with one another. Now, I want to say, you could preach like probably four sermons on this one chapter, but we're going to take it all in one sermon today. We're going to take it really in just two parts. So there's going to be two points to this message the first come in verses 1 through 12, and the second in verses 13 through 23. But the first thing that we're going to see in this text is that we ought to welcome the weak because God welcomes the weak. We welcome the weak because God welcomes the weak. So without further ado, let's dive into the text. But as we do, I also just want to, one last thing, say that this passage is telling us something to do. And this passage is one of those like niche Christian things. Like, what do we do when we disagree within the church? That's kind of a, like, specific question, a specific issue. Of course, that's going on in uh, the first century Rome, Roman church, but it's also going on here. So this applies to us. But I think I find myself reading this text and being like, okay, like, I get it, I get it, I get it, guy. Like, come on, let's move it along. I want to get to, like, Romans 15 or want to maybe go back to, like, Romans 8 or something. But I want you to see that this text is important. Why? Because... It forms the very way that we relate to each other, like on a daily basis. How are you to treat people in the church? That's what we're talking about. So incredibly important. Let's open up to Romans 14, and let's look at verse 1 through 12 first. God's Word says this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give, gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? 
Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This first half of the chapter, we see this command. Welcome the weak. Welcome the weak, because God welcomes the weak, right? And throughout this chapter, Paul's talking about two different types of people. You've got the weak that he talks about, and then you've got the strong. Now, if you're like me, you hear those two things, and you're like, all right, I'm on team strong. I am going to identify as strong today. And so that's my position, and I'm, I'm a strong guy. Um, that's not the way to do this. And I think that we need to understand a little bit more about what Paul is saying in the, his first century Roman context before we go trying to choose a team or trying to identify with a weak or strong one or the other. So look in verse 1. What does it say? As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Paul mentions the weak in faith. And then later on in this text, he's going to mention those who are strong. Those who are strong in their faith. So when Paul says that someone is weak in their faith, what does that mean? Is he talking about maybe someone who's like a recent believer and they're just like kind of weak in their faith? Maybe someone who's just not as mature or something like that? Well, no. I think what we, what we have here, what, what's going on is that when Paul speaks of someone who is weak in faith, he's, talking, he's not talking about saving faith, okay? So there's a difference here. When Paul says that someone is weak in faith, that faith is not saving faith. What is it then? Paul is talking about the faith, or maybe if you were to change out the word, the confidence, the trust, the confidence, the faith that someone has to do a particular activity, such as what we see in the text, eating meat, celebrating Jewish days, things like that. So the weak person here is not weak in their faith as in immature in their faith. They're weak in their faith as in they have a weak conscience that will not allow them to partake in certain things such as meat or to observe certain things such as Jewish days. And then the strong person has a conscience that would allow them to eat meat or allow them to not be involved in specific Jewish holidays. Now, if getting into this, you're already like, okay, I'm already sort of tired of this example. Uh, Well, Let me give it to you in a different way, maybe a story form. If you look at Acts chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, but when you read in Acts chapter 10, you see a story of the apostle Peter. And at this time, the gospel has come, the church is growing, things are going crazy. And one of the real big issues early on in the church is like, what do we do with like this Jewish religion that we just had that now seems to be like sort of like completely different than this Christian religion that we now have in Christ? How do, we, how do we deal with that? And it was a difficult question. Like, like do, you still, do you still not eat pig, for instance? Like, whether or not you can eat bacon was a massive issue in the first century, and for good reason, because bacon is delicious, but also for theological reasons, too. And so th- those are issues that they're thinking about. And the apostle Peter, at this point in time, despite having walked with Jesus, despite hearing Jesus say, there is no unclean thing, the apostle Peter is still following the Jewish food laws. And so he's refusing to eat meat. He's refusing to do all these things. And Peter here, in this sense, has a weak conscience. That is until he has a dream where the Lord speaks to him and says, hey, Peter, guess what, man? I'm going to need you to eat some of that stuff. And Peter's like, well, Lord, I've never eaten an unclean thing. Don't want to stop my streak now. And Jesus is like, no, fam, you need to eat. This is important. And so he eats, things progress, this whole idea of like, what do we do with the Jewish laws? That issue begins to push forward. They think about it. You've got the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 and all sorts of great things happen. But what we learn is that by the time that the book of Romans is being written, they're still struggling with this. We still have some questions about it. What should we do about eating meat? What should we do about observing Jewish holidays? Those things aren't necessarily bad. Like you're not sinning if you don't eat meat. Some of you in here are vegetarian or vegan. Like, you're not sinning because you don't eat meat. And some of you may say, man, I really want to think about the Sabbath and, 
and do that. Like, well, you're not sinning by observing the Sabbath either. These are issues that were happening in the first century. So when we speak of those who are weak and those who are strong, we're talking about those who are strong or weak in conscience. We see that right here in our text. Paul talks about these issues. Some people in the church only ate vegetables while others ate meat, and some preferred to observe days such as the Sabbath or Passover while others did not. So in in all of this, what does Paul command his first century readers? What does he say to them? What, what, What do we do about all this stuff? Well, he commands them. He says, do not despise one another and do not pass judgment on one another. You see, these issues, eating meat, observing days, they're non-essential. You do not need to have a right or wrong opinion about eating meat or observing Jewish holidays in order to be a Christian. They are non-essential. They may be important, but they're non-essential. And so Paul calls them to live in peace with one another. Now, in his commentary, there's a guy named Andrew Nacelli. He provides a really helpful table to explain the tension between the strong and the weak. And I'm not normally a guy who likes to show all the tables and stuff on the screen, but this one's really helpful. In fact, this is one of two today. And so I won't fault you if you have a hard time maybe drawing this in your notes. You just want to be that person, the boomer. Take a picture of it. It's okay. It is okay. I would normally judge you, but I'm not going to judge you because we're talking about not judging people. So feel free to take a picture. Uh, We have this table up here on the screen that helps us to understand the tension between strong and weak. And the, the example here is the issue of eating meat. And so here's the issue. Should we be confident to eat meat? All right, well, a strong conscience say, yeah, I can eat whatever I want. Sounds good. Like the Lord said, there's nothing unclean. A weak conscience would say, no, I remember my Jewish customs I grew up with said that I don't need to do this. I still don't think I want to eat meat. Okay, well, what's a permissible rationale for those things? Well, something that's permissible would be someone who eats meat would say, I have the freedom to eat meat. Jesus declared all foods clean. Food will not commend us to God. And so we're no worse off if we eat or don't eat meat. That's a great rationale. That's a a great logic to have about this issue. You see? Now, what's a permissible rationale for not eating meat, for having a weak conscience? Well, I want to keep some of our previous food restrictions because I prefer the Jewish custom. Okay. So Paul says, both of those things, fine. One is preferred to the other. It's preferred to have a strong conscience, not a weak conscience. But either one of them is fine. The issue happens in the way that we respond. And that's the next three rows here. You see, what's a God-glorifying attitude look like when you have a disagreement like eating meat in the first century? Well, a strong conscience would say, you know what? I can eat meat to the glory of God, and I'm not going to pass judgment on other people who don't eat meat. I'm going to welcome those Christians who disagree with me on this issue. Now, what does a weak conscience say when they have a God-glorifying attitude? They say, well, I'm going to abstain from eating meat for the glory of God, and likewise, I'm not going to pass judgment. I'm going to welcome the people that disagree with me on this issue. Do you see that? Those, that so if you stay in those first two rows, we're good. We're golden. The issues happen further down. So what's a sinful attitude? Well, maybe the person who eats meat would live in arrogance saying, well, those who can't eat meat with a clear conscience are not merely theologically incorrect, but they're also unreasonable. You see how that's passing judgment on someone? That person's just unreasonable. They have got no idea what they're talking about. Looking down on someone, passing judgment. What about the person with the weak conscience? Well, they can sort of fall into judgmentalism. They can say, well, it's actually sinful to eat meat. And so Christians who eat meat, they're actually being unfaithful to God because God would have us to do this. See how that's a sinful attitude? That's putting stipulations where the Bible does not put stipulations. And then you can go even a step further into a heretical view. The person who eats meat could fall into idolatry and say, I've got the freedom to eat meat even when it's sacrificed to idols, even when it's used in the pagan ritual that is specifically talked about in 1 Corinthians that we should not do. In Acts 15, that we should not eat meat sacrificed to idols. Not a common thing in America. I get it. But remember, we're in first century land right now. 
What's a heretical view of the weak conscience? What would be legalism? They would say Christians actually have to follow the Mosaic law in order to earn God's favor. So this table shows the tension between the weak and the strong. And Paul tells the church here how to address it. How do we address it? What's the command in verses 1 through 12? It's simply this. Welcome the one who is weak. Now, there's a lot of different ways that this applies to us now in 2023. I think it's interesting that these issues are actually kind of issues, but not for the same reasons. Like, people are not vegans or vegetarians because they believe in Jewish laws, but they might be for other things. Still something we can disagree on. Still something that we should welcome people no matter what. It's, it's silly to disagree over food. That's what we're going to read in the second half of this chapter. It's just silly to disagree over something like food. But even nowadays, there, there are Christians who observe Jewish holidays. That's kind of seeing a resurgence. There's been some books written... Uh, John Mark Comer and others about Sabbath and uh, even Habits of the Household talks about Sabbath. And so certain Christians are going to be like on a spectrum about those issues. Well, what should we believe about the Sabbath? Like, what if that person in my MC won't hang out with me because they observe the Sabbath? Like, what do I do with that? Well, what does the text tell us to do? Welcome them. Love them. Don't disagree over this issue. It's not an important issue. It's not an essential issue on the same level as salvation. So welcome them, love them, show them kindness, show them deference. That's what we're supposed to do. But I think at this point, there's also other parallels to our own 21st century context that are not just about eating meat or observing Jewish holidays. You see, this passage applies to us in more than just those ways. Though we may not deal with bitter strife about Jewish holidays or eating meat, we have to recognize that there are many issues in our day today that are very divisive, that are polarizing, that are going to make you squirm in your seat when I talk about them. We talk about politics, racism, modesty, and what kind of clothes that we should wear. Alcohol, yikes. Sexual ethics, different parenting styles. If you're a parent, you know that one's very contentious. What people are willing to watch on TV, what people are willing to watch in a movie, what kind of music people are willing to listen to, how people spend their money. All of these are issues that we do deal with nowadays and that we probably have all of us at some point in time either been weak or strong on one of those things, right? I have judged someone about all of these things. Guilty. I'm a sinner. That's no surprise. I'm sure you have too. I want you to see that this this text is actually really important. We we read about eating meat. We read about Jewish holidays. And I think we're like, all right, go ahead and wrap this one up early, pastor. Let's go ahead and get to lunch after church and we can get out of here early. No, 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 no. This text really speaks to us today. And the crazy thing is, from that list I just read, we could add even more things to it. There's many issues today that people have differing opinions on. And in a few minutes, Paul's going to tell us how we should deal with those issues and those differences. But what I want you to see right now in this first point is that regardless of how you feel about non-essential issues, your main concern should be to live in a loving way with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of how you feel about those things, your primary concern is to live in love. I'll say it again. This is easier said than done. It is difficult to love someone with whom you disagree. So we have to ask ourselves, well, why would we go to such trouble? There's probably 250 people in this room. You know what? I don't have to be friends with all of y'all. Why don't I just like find all the people that think like me, act like me, talk like me, And I'll just like be friends with them and all those people that I disagree with. They can kind of just be over there. And we're in the same church. And yeah, I love you in the Lord, guy, but I'm not going to be your friend. Why don't we just act like that? Is it too difficult? Is it too hard? Well, look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7 and following says this, For none of us lives to himself. 
and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So why is it important to welcome the weak? Why is it important to get outside of our comfort zone and experience this gospel unity? Paul tells us, because we don't live for ourselves. Your life is not about you. Look in verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Listen, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we would sit around and have heated debates about third and fourth tier issues. That is not why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could sit here and have public battles about politics. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could, in front of a watching world, fight each other over minor issues. That's not why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to be Lord of you, to be Lord of me. Jesus died on the cross for a much greater purpose. And if Jesus is Lord of the dead and the living, then Jesus is certainly Lord of third and fourth tier issues. And if Jesus is Lord of those issues, then Jesus gets to tell us what we do with those issues. And what does Jesus tell us to do through the pen of Paul? Jesus says, welcome those who are weak. Stop fighting and welcome those who are weak. And the main application in the first half of this chapter is that. For those of you who are strong in conscience, welcome those who are weak in conscience. What does that mean? It, it means when we disagree on issues, we don't judge each other and we don't despise one another. Those are the imperative commands in this first half of the chapter. And I want to provide a particular application for the weak and a particular application here for the strong. But before I do so, I want to note what I noted a little bit earlier, that you are not one or the other. You are both. You're going to be weak on some issues, and you're going to be strong on some issues. You might be strong when it comes to the issue of alcohol and think, man, I, I can enjoy a drink. But you might be weak when it comes to modesty and clothes. You might be strong when it comes to this or that, and you might be weak. And so I want you to see that you don't need to just key in on one of these applications. They're both for you. It just depends on the issue at hand. And so for the weak, when you have a weak conscience on something, you need to ask yourself, what is motivating me to hold a particular conviction regarding this non-essential issue? What is motivating me to hold a particular conviction regarding this non-essential issue? You see, motivation in your convictions is more important than your convictions when it comes to third and fourth year issues. You see, your convictions on alcohol are not as important as the motives for those convictions. Your motives for what you watch on TV or how you spend your money are more important than the convictions you have for those things. Whether you abstain or partake, we see in verse 6 that the important thing is that you're able to honor the Lord either way. Can you show gratitude to God while maintaining your convictions? So for the weak, what's, what's motivating you to hold that conviction? And secondly, for the strong, what steps are you taking to foster reconciliation in the midst of disagreement? You might say, oh, wait, 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 wait. If I'm, if I'm in the strong group here, why do I have to be the one to take the first step? Well, look at how Paul starts this chapter. What does he say? As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Who is Paul talking to? He's not talking to the weak. He's talking about the weak. He's talking about the weak to the strong. And so the burden of reconciliation is on those who have a strong conscience. So if you're here and you find yourself saying, man, I have a great strong conscience. I'm fine with this, fine with that. I'm, I'm good with most things. Well, it's your burden then to begin this reconciliation within the church. And as I studied this passage this week, I was just absolutely struck by this fact. You see, because this is so counter-cultural to our world today. 
The strong do not serve the weak in our world. The strong don't serve the weak. No, in our world, the strong earn things. They work up the ladder. They attain position. They gain status. Why? All in order to serve themselves. But in the church, see, everything is just flipped upside down. We emulate Christ by serving others, by meeting them where they are, regardless of how strong or weak they are in their faith. You see, in the church, the strong serve the weak. And this should not be any sort of surprise to us because this is the gospel. And I don't want to take away from what we'll preach on next week, but in Romans 15, this is the ground for chapter 14. Why do we do this? Why do we serve the strong? Or why do we serve the weak as the strong? Why do we have to be the one to take that first step toward reconciliation? Because that's what God did for us. Did we take the first step in salvation? No. The Father did by sending Jesus in the likeness of flesh to die on the cross for us. So we emulate Christ when we take the first step to see reconciliation happen in our midst. Now, why is all of this important? I want you to see something here. And I get that this is kind of like down in the weeds when we talk about like the book of Romans and everything else. But like, I want you to see this beautiful truth of why. Why do we even have this chapter in the Bible? What we learn is that the church is a beautiful and diverse group of people like no other group of people in the whole entire world. There is no other group like us. History tells us, if you are a student of history, what group has caused people with different political opinions, different socioeconomic statuses, men and women, old and young, what causes people from such vastly different perspectives to come together and live in unity. The only thing that can do that is the cross of Christ. That's why this is important. That's why we're getting in the weeds here with some of these things that might seem like, all right, this is like Christian 2.0 kind of an issue. I don't need to do this. Like, No, you do, because this is an issue of the mission of God. You see, if we are infighting if we're sort of sectioning each other off in the church, creating cliques, not welcoming people because of what they believe or because of what they look like or because of who they are, then guess what? The church loses its missional power because it's only the church that can bring together a group of people like this and rally around a message as good as the gospel. Nothing else can do that. So the mission of God is at stake in how we treat one another. And how we relate to one another. That's why it's so important. And that's what we learn in the first half of this chapter. We see this practical command. Welcome those who are weak in the faith. But the second half of this chapter gives us the specific way that we can accomplish this. In the second half of our passage, we see the command to pursue the kingdom by pursuing peace. And I just want to say, I know that it's, I don't know what time it is, but it feels like I'm going long. So... We have like three pages of notes left after I've done 11. So hang in there. Hang in there with me. What does the second half of this chapter say? Let's read together. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the second thing, the second point of our passage is this. Pursue the kingdom by pursuing peace. Welcome those who are weak in faith because God welcomes us. And secondly, pursue the kingdom by pursuing peace. Paul, in the second half of this chapter, explains how we can carry out the command to welcome those who are weak. The command is simple. Do not put a stumbling block in the way of your weaker brothers and sisters. Well, what does that mean? Look in verse 14. Paul says that nothing is unclean. I know nothing is unclean. Jesus said nothing is unclean. But if you eat something and by doing so cause your brother to stumble by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. You see, the Bible teaches that our Christian liberty is never more important than our Christian unity. You see that? The Bible teaches that our Christian liberty is never more important than our Christian unity. This is a pivotal point to understand. We must put others first. Now, as we come to a close, I want to give you three practical pointers because I think this concept may cause a lot of questions in our mind. When we talk about stumbling blocks for people, Three helpful points. Number one, when we talk about laying a stumbling block for others, this does not mean that if your Christian liberty irritates or annoys someone that you have to stop exercising your Christian liberty. If your brother or sister simply does not prefer you to have the convictions that you have, you don't have to change your convictions. Your convictions are not subject to someone else. Your convictions are yours. But secondly, while we are not called to change our convictions because someone may find it irritating or annoying, we are commanded to live in love. And so the way that we exercise our Christian freedoms really matters. We must not flaunt our Christian liberties. And the third thing that I want to mention is this. There's a difference between conviction and transgression. This is where we need to exercise a great deal of wisdom and a fierce commitment to the Word of God. You see, oftentimes Christian can mistake a conviction with transgression. This happens when someone uses their Christian liberty in order to sin. You see, there are some lines that we simply cannot cross. Where the Bible is clear on an issue, we must also be clear on an issue. What Paul is talking about in this text is not black and white issues. He doesn't say, well, you can have an opinion on this, even if it's contrary to the Bible. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about non-essential issues where there's a gray area. And so, for instance, the LGBT agenda is not a matter of Christian conscience. Everything that the LGBT community teaches runs contrary to Scripture. And so we must lovingly reject all of their teaching and instead offer a better and more hopeful alternative in the gospel of Jesus. There's a tendency to use the excuse of Christian liberty to excuse sinful behavior. And that's something that we have to be careful of in the church. While politics in general are somewhat of a gray area, Christians cannot support the horror of abortion in any way. It's not an option. While different cultures and different times have different standards for dress and for modesty, Christians must not find their identity in their outward appearance. While there are different perspectives on alcohol, Christians must not allow themselves to be buzzed or affected by drinking because that's the first step in drunkenness. Far too often, Christians are guilty of seeking to get as close to sin as humanly possible without actually sinning. You, you ask, how far can I go? When the call of Christ is not to just avoid sin, it's not to just avoid the infraction, but instead the call of Christ is to conform to the image of Christ. So you say, well, pastor, how do I, how do I, there's so many places where this can apply. There's so many like gray areas. Hence the second flowchart on the screen. Feel free to take a picture again. But don't look at what time it is. Okay. Here's a great way to operate when we think about these contentious issues. Question number one, does the Bible allow it? If the answer is no, do not do that thing. 
Very simple. Don't sin. Okay. Well, if the Bible does allow it, you have to ask yourself, does my conscience allow it? Well, if your conscience does not allow it, don't do that thing. I'll give you a, for ex- uh, an example. The Bible allows people to drink alcohol. I think that's fine. The Bible does not allow drunkenness. Okay? That's very clear. Guess what? I don't drink. Why? Because my conscience doesn't really permit it. It's around. It's there. Caitlin will tell you. I just, like, don't want to. I, I have this conscience thing about it, but I'm fine if you do. Have a beer. That's great. Live it up. But don't get drunk. Don't live it up too much. But my conscience doesn't allow it. I have a weak conscience in that regard. And you know what? That's fine. I'm not sinning by maintaining that conviction. I'm just living my life. It's okay. I'm fine to abstain, and I'm fine if you partake within the, the godly guidelines of the Bible. Does the Bible allow it? Does my conscience allow it? Well, if the answers to both of those are yes, then you have three questions to ask yourself. Number one, what is the effect on other Christians? How does this affect my brother or sister? That, that should be our first question. How is this going to help or hurt my brother or sister in Christ? Number two, what is the effect on non-Christians? How does this affect the mission of God? And then number three, what is the effect on my own spiritual life? What is this doing to me? Am I actually searing my conscience by partaking in activity over time so that I think my conscience permits it? What is this doing to me? In all of this, we're faced again with the question, is this all worth it? Seems like a lot of work. There's a flow chart involved. (laughs) Pursuing peace with others takes a lot of effort, even with fellow believers. But we're reminded in verse 17 that this is all about the kingdom of God. Gospel unity is a kingdom issue. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy. And rather than fighting about non-essential issues, we must pursue peace and focus on the mutual upbuilding of one another. And as I close, let me just say, when we keep the gospel at the center of all we do, we will love one another by putting aside our preferences for the sake of each other. It's a loving thing to do. I want to put aside my preferences for you. And then when we do that, We build a community of love. We build a community that doesn't look like anything else in this entire world. And we display the beauty of the gospel to a lost and dying world that is desperate to hope in something that is real. And we give them a picture of what that really looks like. So may we pursue gospel unity and the mutual upbuilding of one another as we pursue peace. Let's pray.